teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. Don't you find this interaction interesting? Jesus asks them, what do you want? And they reply, show us where you're staying. Where are you dwelling tonight? There must be more to this story to understand. Because if you were following behind Jesus, Jesus turned around to you and said, what do you want? What would you say? How would you respond? Can you articulate what you want? Maybe we need to remove Jesus from the one asking because I think if Jesus asked me, what do you want? I think I would say what I'm supposed to say. I would say what I ought to say I want, which at some level I'm sure is an authentic expression of what I want. You know, it is genuine. It's an intellectual articulation of my conviction. But I think if I'm left to myself, maybe if you're left to yourself and think about what you want and go down a little bit deeper into your soul, There's other things down there. Like maybe there's some wants, some dreams, some desires, some aspirations that you hold so closely that you don't really want others to know because what if that doesn't happen and the disappointment that would come with that? Or maybe there's some things in your wants down deep that are on the darker side and you'd be rather afraid for the world to know what those desires and wants are that drive you are. Or maybe if we even go down deeper into who we are, that there is a control center of our life that is guiding and directing, making us who we are, driving what we do. And down there, there are some things that we want, some things that we desire that are actually at the operating system level of who we are and what we do. And those kinds of desires, we might not even be aware of. So if we go back to the story, we have John the Baptist and two of his disciples, John and Andrew. And John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God, which he's very famous for saying and often would say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's kind of an intention-getting statement for him to say, hey, look, there's Jesus, God incarnate. The guy who can solve all your problems. That is pretty intriguing. Draws you in and captivates you. As it did John and Andrew. The allure of Jesus is powerful. And so this is what drew in John and Andrew. And they leave John the Baptist. He was the messenger. He was the one preparing the way. And now they leave him to follow Jesus. Literally following right behind him staring at the back of his head, probably thinking and wondering, is this true? Are you the Lamb of God? They're captivated. And Jesus turns around and asks, what do you want? Those first recorded words by John of what Jesus said. What do you want? It's interesting because Jesus doesn't turn around and say, hey, who are you looking for? And Jesus doesn't turn around and say, oh, hey, guys. Do you believe that I am the Lamb of God? He doesn't start there. He starts with, what do you want? Because Jesus assumes, when they're following him, Jesus assumes that they are in pursuit of the thing which will satisfy their needs. 
They're in pursuit of that thing which will give reality to their dreams and structure to their hopes. The allure of the Messiah has drawn them in, and now they're following Jesus, looking for him to be that thing. And something deep within them is pulling them toward Jesus like a magnet. So Jesus asks a question of the heart. What do you want? Although their response might seem strange to us today, as we kind of think about it, it makes sense, right? Jesus says, what do you want? And they say, hey, where are you staying? Where are you dwelling tonight? Because what do they want? They want more of Jesus. They want more of him, so they want to go and be around him. They want to go to where he's staying and hang around. And as we see the story of Jesus' life unfold, this is what's happening. Crowds upon crowds of people are gathering because they want to be near Jesus. They want to be around him. And so that's kind of that, we want more of you. But, like so many words in the gospel, this word for where are you staying or where are you dwelling or abiding has a double significance. Because, yes, Jesus is laying his head down and sleeping somewhere tonight, and you can find him in the morning there. But also, while here on earth, Jesus also dwells continually in heaven in unbroken union with his Father. So yes, Jesus is here on earth, but he is also with the Father in heaven. And so that's the invitation to these men. Come and see. It's not just come and see where I'm sleeping tonight, but come and see. Come and see my Father. Come and see this thing about heaven. Jesus is inviting them to come and gain from him insight into the very mind and purposes of God. And this is the beginning of their journey to them abiding with Jesus and Jesus abiding with them. So our challenge as we read this story is that it's so familiar. Jesus, Lamb of God, is so familiar that it feels a little dull. It's not in, as intriguing or as engaging as John and Andrew experienced back then. So we are just familiar with this. But also, we live in this cultural context, this, this way of thinking that, that forms our lives, this way of thinking that has been woven into the fiber of our being, that you are what you think. You are what you think. That's just kind of the landscape we live in. We've inherited this from people like Rene Descartes. Back in the day, he said, I think, therefore, I am. And he's operating from this, this idea that the essence of the human being is that you are a thinking thing. You are a thinking thing. And so now we have other books still written about this. You are what you think. This idea that you can think and then you can succeed. And so when we come to Jesus, we have a harder time understanding him because Jesus is operating from a different understanding of what is the essence of being human. This sounds blasphemous in our you-are-what-you-think culture that we live in, but Jesus is less interested in what we think, and he is far more interested in our heart. Jesus cares about what you love. Because what you love, that is what is at the control center of your life. That is the essence of being a human being. So you are what you love. Another book James K.A. Smith wrote by that title, 
You are what you love, and that's blurry. It's not your eyesight. But you are what you love. The spiritual power of habit. And in this book, Smith pokes at this dominant cultural idea that you are what you think. He pokes at it. He says, well, if you are what you think, then changing what you think should change who you are. Changing what you think should change who you are. But if that's true, then why are we so disappointed with ourselves all the time? Why do we not think and then change? Maybe you've experienced this gap between what you know and what you do. This gap. And you know this, but then you do something different. Perhaps, for example, Monday night, you know Halloween candy is toxic to your body. You know that it's terrible for your teeth. But did you eat any Halloween candy? Perhaps. There's a gap between what we know and we do, what we do. Or maybe you've experienced this gap when knowledge and information just don't translate into actual change in your life. You know, as we can read these books, and you've probably experienced reading a book, or perhaps you've been to a church service where you've heard an illuminating sermon by Susie, and in that you're, you're kind of caught up in it, and the idea in your, your mind is excited, and you're inspired for your life to be different, and so tomorrow you're going to be different, and you're going to live that differently. But something fades, and by Tuesday... That has gone, and now you can hardly even remember what the sermon was about. There's this gap between what we know and what we do. There's not this great connection always between information and a new way of life. We are what we love. And knowing this, Jesus didn't bother asking a thinking question. Jesus reached into their hearts. Jesus knows that our drives and our motivations are centered in our hearts, not in our heads. You know, Jesus was there at creation when they were figuring out how we're going to make humanity, and God decided to make people lovers. And what this means is that to be human is to love, and to love is to be on the move after something, pursuing something. On the move. And we are simply hardwired in our being, who we are as humans, that we are hardwired to love. And what we long for and what we want, that is at the control center of our lives. But Jesus also knows that that space where love goes and sits at the control center, that is not hardwired or preset. That is actually open. And Jesus knows that there is a multitude of things in this world that are trying to take that place in our lives, to be at the control center. There's all kinds of things that look good and look desirable that can take that place in our life of what we love. And as humans, we were simply made to love, and we cannot not love. Perhaps you all took French back in high school, as I did, and read Le Petit Prince. Or as I did, you actually just kind of looked up the words in the dictionary and tried to get it, but had no clue what the story is about.
But I did come across this quote, and this is a great quote from Le Petit Prince. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And interesting, it's not about your head, it's about this heart motivation to teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. The allure of the sea captures our hearts. It gives us direction and purpose in the adventure to pursue. So we are not as motivated by these abstract ideas. We are not as motivated by rules and the things that are put on us. Instead, we are motivated from our heart. Our heart compels us. You know, we have this vision of the good life, and that takes place, takes the place at the control center of our lives, and then it moves us out. What we love compels us toward what we think will satisfy and fulfill us and make us happy. So in this way, Jesus sparked that interest, that intrigue in Andrew and John. They are drawn into Jesus. They, they were curious. They wanted to know more. And they left John the Baptist and started following Jesus because this allure of Jesus pulled them in. The Lamb of God became their love. Jesus became their vision of the good life, that in following him, they will get there. They will find what they're looking for. A vision in Jesus had power both to drive them toward Jesus, kind of internally moving them toward him, but it's also interesting how there is this equal pull, pulling them toward Jesus. That's happening both ways. So we are what we love, and this is happening around us all the time, every day. And there's a multitude of things that can take that place at the control center of our lives. And God would like to be in priority, ordering all the loves in our lives and directing us. But here's how loves get into our hearts. You may have heard that after 108 years, the Cubs won the World Series. It's very exciting. You know, the Cubs have never actually lived anywhere in my heart with love. But I fear that for my five-year-old Russell, he is at risk of this happening to him. And how does this work? How will he get the Cubs into his heart? Well, it's not going to be by thinking, rational thought. He's five. He probably doesn't have much rational thought. Because he's not thinking through the pain and suffering of another 108 years before they win the World Series again. He's not weighing that out and considering that rationally. It's not about thinking. It's all about his heart. Because what is happening to him is that he's seeing his grandpa, a lifetime Cubs fan, excited and just thrilled by the victory, and just caught up in it. And Russell is beginning to imitate him as he sees these activities of saying, go Cubs, go, and singing that seventh inning song. He's caught up in the excitement of that. And he's beginning to practice the rituals of being a fan. 
And by watching his grandpa, imitating him, and practicing these rituals of being a fan, the Cubs are becoming, perhaps, one of Russell's loves. And once that happens, his life will be directed by that love. He'll make choices toward them and away from other things. So you can understand how loves take root in our heart and take their place of control, guiding us and directing us, orientating us toward that thing that we think will make us happy, even if it's irrational, like the Cubs winning again. So we are what we love. What do you love? What do you love? You know, our hard wiring to love orients us towards some sense of what will give us the good life, what will make us happy. And we live in this world where there's all kinds of things vying for us, competition for our hearts to take that place. And maybe you've heard in yourself these kinds of things where your heart is saying, ah, if I get this, if I get that, then I'll be satisfied. Or if I am with her, ah, my life will be fulfilled forever. Or maybe you say, well, if I can get rid of this, then I'll be happy, finally. It's these things of our heart pursuing and moving. And love is at the center of our being. And there is some sense of what the good life is that is driving us to pursue that vision. And this is not a thought-through, rational kind of intellectual pursuit. But rather, this is more your visceral, unarticulated, simply being pulled in that direction. You know, deep within us, we have this vague but incredibly attractive and alluring sense of where happiness is. And that love, that thing, whatever it is, begins driving us toward it. Maybe you've said something or you've done something in life and somebody asks you, what, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? Why did you say that? And the bottom line is you were not thinking. Something else in you was driving you. You know, we have an AA group meets here on Sunday evening and Saturday morning. And the great thing about AA, this great line that gets said is, your best thinking got you here. Your best thinking got you here. There was something else driving you, and that is what you need to work through. So Jesus. Jesus wanted their hearts. You know, his response, come and see, is that he wants their hearts. You know, he didn't begin with thinking, with a lecture. Uh, he didn't, like, give them the list of information dump of, here's what you need to do, not do. This is kind of, you know the agreement we're going to make together, guys. You know, unbelievably, Jesus did not have them sign a statement of faith <gasps> or sign a mission statement of this is where we're going and, guys, we're going to get there and this is what we're going to do. Jesus did none of that because he didn't begin with thinking. Jesus started with their hearts because Jesus knew if their hearts were captured, if he had their hearts, then he could work on orienting their hearts toward God. He could work on their hearts, which then their thinking would follow. So if we are what we love, then how does Jesus curate our hearts? 
What do we do to calibrate our hearts into alignment with God's heart? You know, how do we tune our hearts to the Creator? Our hearts learn through the formation that is done to us through what we do. Our hearts learn through the formation that is done to us through what we do. It's kind of an end-around way of that happening. These things we do aren't necessarily getting the job done, but in doing them, that is doing something to us. And if you have learned how to play an instrument, you're familiar with this, right? It is by practicing and repeating the scales on a piano that the activity has an effect to inscribe into our very fiber of our being those scales. It, it moves into our being that over time your fingers can produce those scales without your brain even thinking about it. You can just naturally do it. And in a similar way, our hearts are formed through imitation and practice. You know, so first thing that happened was for Andrew and John to be allured and drawn to Jesus. And the first thing is this allure that turning our hearts toward God and tuning them toward God begins with this vision of God that we were pulled into. You know, we get glimpses of God through the scripture and these stories. We get these glimpses of God through people's lives and the stories we hear told about their lives with God. We, we get glimpses of God through creation, where you look out and you say, wow, this is amazing, and you're just pulled up into what God has made and created. And sometimes even the Spirit stirs within our hearts, and that stirring moves us. There's an allure to move toward God. And the language that Jesus used to kind of describe these things, as he was talking to people, he would describe them as hunger and thirst and craving. Because Jesus said, these are the things that are in you. It's a hunger. And to recognize it as a hunger for God. There's a space in you that hungers for God. And then to seek to put God into that space. Don't let any of the other substitutes make their way in. But let God take that space. And then order your other loves. So first it begins with this allure to be drawn in. But then the second step is to take action through imitation. You know, this is Jesus' invitation to come and see. And for John and Andrew, it was a literal come and see. Follow me. Do what I do. Be with me. Be around me. Let your hearts be formed by practicing the scales of what you see me doing. And so when Jesus then left this earth and the disciples are left behind, they became the ones who had been imitating Christ. And now the second generation of believers is looking to them to imitate them as they imitate Christ. And so this is that beautiful line where Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And then the third step to tuning our hearts to God is practice. The rhythms, the routines, and the rituals that you practice Tune your heart. You know, like practicing those scales on the piano, the things you do, do something to you. And practice inscribes into the very essence of your being that love. It gets so deep in you that no longer do you even have to think about it. 
You can just do it naturally. It becomes second nature. Do you know what second nature is? First, there's our first nature, which first nature is all of our biological functions that are happening without us even thinking about them. For example, right now, you're not even thinking about breathing, and yet you're doing it. You're not thinking about digesting your bagel, but your body's just naturally doing that. These things are actually so on their own that your thinking can hardly even begin to alter those functions, which is pretty powerful to consider. So when something becomes second nature, it's when that habit becomes so ingrained in you that you naturally do it, becomes so woven into who you are that they are natural things to do that you don't even have to think about them anymore. It's kind of like breathing or blinking. You don't have to think about them or choose them. They just come naturally. Well, this morning, me describing allure and imitation and practice is a very thinker thing to do. You know, the better way is for us to try these things for ourselves. You know, we're not going to tune our hearts to God's heart through theory. You know, there's a place and importance for theory, but the tuning happens when we put these things into practice and live them out. Being here this morning, hopefully, we are pointing you toward Jesus to imitate him, to embrace these practices. And hopefully there's some inspiration that comes by looking to Jesus and being caught up in his allure once again, motivating us to want to imitate, motivating us to want to practice. But being here this morning, this right here is a practice. You know, coming to the communion table, that is a practice. You know, singing, singing with your voice, not just in your head, that is a practice. You know, fellowshipping, you know, the conversations and the talking and the imitating each other, that is a practice, which is a good opportunity for me to say men's retreat this upcoming weekend, let me know. Fellowship, imitating Christ and encouraging each other. You know, it is a practice each morning when you put your feet solid on the ground and you say, good morning, God, thank you for another day, help me tune my heart to you today. That is a practice. You know, a good place to learn practices and to do them and to tune your heart is by coming to the Wednesday night wholehearted group. You know, as Charlie's leading that, it's a leading into the practices to do them, to live them out, not just in theory, but through practice. Well, the bottom line, the bottom line this morning is make a move toward God. Make a move towards tuning your heart with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to this earth to show us who you are, to give us an example that we can imitate, we can follow. And God, I pray that we would embrace the practices that would tune our hearts to you. God, that we would be in alignment with you. And God, that through that, we would be your people on this earth that would be light and love and salt that is intriguing to others, that they would also want to know you and be pulled into you. Jesus, thank you for the great allure of who you are as our Messiah. I pray that that would be new and fresh every day. 
that we'd be drawn into you, propelled toward you, but also pulled toward you. God, by your grace, I pray that we would live out these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.